During the 1940s, cinema-goers were treated to a series of animated shorts featuring Superman, an iconic hero feared by the criminal elements of Metropolis. Impervious to bullets and possessing superhuman strength, he eventually became known as the Man of Steel. Meanwhile, in a world much stranger than fiction, another Man of Steel is prowling the streets of the real-life Metropolis, New York City, striking fear into the hearts of both criminals and law enforcement officials alike. Standing only five and a half feet tall and weighing approximately 175 pounds, he is described by former NYPD detective Joseph Coffey as a fearsome and vicious street fighter whose fists seemed like they were made out of iron, and he had lightning speed punches. Every time he would punch a man once in the face, he would knock them out unconscious. Although his most famous nickname, the Cigar, or Lilo, is given to him for his smoking habits, other monikers like the Devil and FBI descriptions, such as Psychopathic Killer and Cold-Blooded Killing Machine, shed some light on Galani's true nature. This is the legend of Carmine the Cigar Galani. I wouldn't know a gunman if I saw one. Gangster era stuff. Five feuds of public enemies bring a reign of terror and baffle police. How did this famous gangster treat you? He treated me wonderful. This here, what I'm telling you, what I'm exposing, this is my doom, 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 doom. <laughs> what a word. Slain. Not killed. Uh, slain. It's, it's a different time. It's a different type of end. <laughs> you're talking about a boyfriend, you know. <laughs> but uh, so, uh, what was your impression of Galani? Hell of a guy. Hell you know, of a guy. Didn't, <laughs> can't say it ended well for him. But does it ever end well though? No. Like dying of cancer in your bed is like as good as it's yeah, gonna get yeah. if you choose this life. That's what I told Brett on the way here. It seems like they only die from cancer or. They get shot. You're home every night praying that you get cancer. Yeah. It's your yeah. only chance out of this thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if they don't go to jail, that's how they die. But the thing about Galani that, that I think is different than every other psycho that's, that's involved in this is everybody seems to hate this guy. Like, even the people that were close to him, they hate him. But Anno never included him in his biography. He acted like he was nobody. Uh, there was no one at his funeral, hardly. You know, there, there's. I really get the impression there was no love for this guy. People would talk and say, you know, a lot of these guys, they, they were class acts. I can't say the same for yeah. this guy, you know? <laughs> it's like the guys that get the power, they, they're at least respected. Like Genovese and Joe the Boss we'll talk about. Yes. At least they were respected, not this guy. No. And he I, made that's... a lot of enemies. Yeah. All right. Hey, this is Partners in Crime. Welcome. This is Bill Crooks sitting to my right at a uh, pandemically safe social distance is the uh, storyteller extraordinaire, Zach Griffith. And across from me, the film aficionado with the surname that's hard to live up to, Brett Sexton. <laughs> I love that introduction. <laughs> so Brett, as a fan of gangster films, yes. what would you say is the film that would, not, not just the best film or the best done cinematography or whatever, but... What would you say encompasses the life of the gangster? It's the best description all the way around. It's a tough one. I, I, tough I one like to lay on him. Yeah, I think you've got to include all the reasons you said not to talk about cinematography, those other elements. Goodfellas does such an amazing job of the family life, too, of the re respect to criminals and their community, because it also shows that a lot of the time that they 
give back a lot to their hometowns. They did a lot for the people around them. It didn't only just show the shootouts or the robberies or all the crime. It showed that family life or that community that they had and the respect that each of them had for each other. And it actually was the real testimony of a, of a gangster. It wasn't fictitious mm-hmm. to the most part. Yeah, Henry Hill. So what do you think, Zach? Yeah, I would say Goodfellas or uh, I thought Casino did a really good job too. Almost for the same reasons. Yeah. It's, it's the, you know, I've seen documentaries and it's almost just like the screenplay. Yeah, yeah cause especially with how the mob was so invested into Las Vegas. Yeah, they literally built that town. Yeah. I mean, we know we know about Bugsy Siegel, but I think a guy like Ace Rothstein as he in the movie, his real name was a uh, Frank Rosenthal, but that guy like he was he mastered that business like nobody probably ever has. He just he ran that town. Yeah. Every yeah, every one of those hotels had mob ties. Yeah, all of them. You couldn't go during that time period, you could not go to a hotel and gamble. Without your money being tampered no. <laughs> Not like now where uh, the no. casinos are completely straight up yeah. and clean. Yeah, very clean. <laughs> <laughs> and another one I watched the other day, because it's on Netflix now, Donnie Brasco. Yeah. You get the Fed side of it, which you don't really get in, like, Goodfellas or Casino. Yeah, it's not as romantic to be on the Fed side of it. No, it's no. not. One no. movie I, I would pick, and it's probably not on your list, Johnny Dangerously. Michael Keaton, mm, right? Yeah. yeah. It hits every element of gangster life, you know? It's like <laughs> his rise, his fall. He's got like, when he's like, you know what? We're getting out of the game, guys. We got plenty. Yeah, and yeah. There, there's immediately a guy. Yeah, well, I'm opening it up under new management. <laughs> you know? There's like the fighting for the top. There's the uh, yeah. there's the shootouts and stuff. And, uh, and at the end, my favorite, he says, uh, remember, kid, crime doesn't pay. And his wife picks him up in a Rolls Royce. He goes, ah, it pays a little. <laughs> it pays a little. That's that's so fascinating too about those movies is that I you love to watch that rise. Sometimes it's either really quick to the top and the success they have and their fear by everybody, but there's always that fall where they get too comfortable, they make a mistake, something happens, they get too relaxed, and there's that hard crash where everything around them crumbles yep. and they lose everything and the feds close in. It's just I don't know, every movie has it that's so compelling. Yeah, if it's a movie I've seen a million times, like Scarface, I'll watch it up to that point, hit the stop, and yeah. that's it. I'm done. I'm <laughs> yeah. like, hey, good job, Tony. Yep, he went to, he went to bed and lived a life. <laughs> Nothing happened. He ended on top. <laughs> like I shut off Million Dollar Baby before she gets hurt. Yeah, you know? like, yeah that was a good movie. Uh, she'll win the fight. It's fine. Yeah. Well, so what do you, how do you think like Godfather falls into that? I've seen Godfather a thousand times. Yeah. I think it's great. I think it had an adverse effect. It gives you a false sense of these guys are men of honor and things like that. And I've heard testimony like in the 70s, you think that these guys at Knickerbocker Avenue are laughing at this or something. They're not. They're emboldened by this, and they're believing their own bullshit now. And he's like, everybody's walking around thinking they're Michael Corleone yeah. and stuff, and they're talking about you know, the code of mafia and stuff, which is a complete <laughs> bunch of horse shit. Yeah. Yeah. Now, yeah, the impact that that had on... Just people in general, I, I don't even know the extent of that it had on actual criminals and people in the mafia. That movie's the standard. Everything has an element or replicates some bit of that movie now. And I, I didn't even think about the impact that would probably have on their own egos. Then yeah, Everybody wants to be Michael Corleone now. They want to be the big dog, petting the cat, spinning in a chair, making these calls. So I think Carmine was uh, Sonny. I think he was Sonny. He was Sonny. <laughs> Sunny, sunny with a mental disorder, yeah. <laughs> He's sunny with syphilis. 
right, let's get started. All right, so Carmine Galani is born on February 21st, 1910 in East Harlem to Italian immigrants Vincenzo James Galani and Vincenzo Russo, who came to New York from Sicily in 1906. James is a fisherman by trade, and the couple has five children in all, many of them not homicidal maniacs. Their infamous son is christened Camilo, but as he grows up, his school friends change his name to Carmine, and it pretty much sticks. Despite the heavy mafia influence in East Harlem, he manages to be a law-abiding citizen for the first nine years of his life. At the age of 10, he takes a hard left. Galani forms a street gang in New York's Lower East Side, but he manages to evade arrest until the age of 14. The arrest occurs for stealing trinkets from a store counter, and since he's a juvenile, he is sent to a reform school as an incorrigible delinquent. By the next year, Galani drops out of school and is working full-time as a mob associate. That could be viewed poorly by the IRS and his various parole officers, so he lists a few quote-unquote straight jobs for the record. His resume includes the Lubin Artificial Flower Company on West Broadway. His duties are unspecified there, but we can assume he's an invaluable asset and fish sorting at the O'Brien Fish Company on South Street. In 1925, he manages to pry himself away from the fish market long enough to rack up an assault charge, to which he pleads guilty. And a year later in December, is sentenced to prison for a two to five year period for second degree assault and robbery. On the street, he is starting to show off that famous temper and he's developing an affinity for expensive suits. On a Saturday morning in March 1930, shoe factory owner Martin Weinstein is on the sixth floor of his building, making up his payroll for the day, under the watchful protection of police officer Walter O. D. Castilla of the 84th Precinct House in Brooklyn Heights. While assembling the $7,500 in payroll envelopes, roughly 112 grand in today's economy, Galani and three other gunmen burst into the main office and stride over to where the two men are sitting. As Officer Castilla rises and reaches for his holstered gun, he is fired upon no less than six times. He is hit once in the leg and twice in the chest. A nine-year veteran, married with a young daughter, dies instantly. The four gunmen reportedly walk coolly out of the room and back to the elevator, where a fifth man is guarding the lift operator. The men descend to the floor level and move casually to a parked car and drive off. At no time do any of the gunmen attempt to retrieve the small mountain of cash that is stacked on the owner's desk. The lift operator later describes the men as young, early to mid-twenties, dark-skinned, and dark hair, all well-dressed. The uniformed officers and detectives that are later crawling the crime scene turn up no evidence. It's thought that at one stage in the investigation that the killing is personal, a grudge killing by one or more of the shooters, but this theory is never proven. Nor is it proven that Galani is involved. It seems that Galani has gotten off scot-free with murder, but his luck is about to run out. On Christmas Day that same year, Galani and his gang are sitting in a parked car. A police detective, Joseph Minahan, approaches a suspicious group of men in a green sedan parked on Driggs Avenue just a few blocks north of the Brooklyn Naval Yard. He draws his gun as he approaches the car, at which point one of the men shouts a warning for the officer to back down. How about the balls on that guy? (laughs) (laughs) The detective finds himself in a shootout. The officer's overcoat is riddled with bullets and he's shot in the leg. A six-year-old girl walking nearby with her mother is seriously wounded in the crossfire. The gang tries to make a hasty retreat, but find their vehicle unwilling to start. They abandon the car and make a desperate attempt to leap onto a passing truck. Three of the four men make it, but Galani's short little legs are unequal to the task. 
<laughs> he loses his footing and falls into the street. Taken to the police station, he is worked over by a group of detectives and brutally beaten. He is later identified as one of a gang of four who had earlier robbed a brewery in Brooklyn. He never admits to anything, including the identities of his accomplices, and after a trial is sentenced on January 1931 to Sing Sing Prison and then to Clinton Prison, Danamora, where he remained until his release in May 1939, serving only eight years of a 12-year sentence. And there is a pretty dapper mugshot of him. It's, uh, he's yeah, got yeah. a nice little curly wave hair going he's on. He's looking all right. You can't see how short he is, you know, so he looks, he looks good. He looks almost, dare I say, almost like uh, Luciana. Uh, yeah. If his right eye would stray a little bit, they'd be dead ringers. A little bit. Uh, in prison, he's clinically tested, and a medical report indicates he has a low IQ of 90 and the mental age of a 14-year-old. Galani is well into his 20s at this time. He's emotionally dull and diagnosed as a neuropathic, psychopathic personality. Dr. Baker, who carries out the examination, also states that Galani is shy, has no knowledge of current events, or any items of common knowledge. A medical check reveals that he injured his head in an auto accident when he was 10, had fractured an ankle at 11, and at the age of 20 is showing signs of gonorrhea. In that should not be in public record. No. <laughs> that, was, that was just a slanderous name. I gotta tell you, if, if I knew stuff like that could get out, I would have led a more straight life. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> it's later said that Galani is emotionally unstable and virtually unable to lose an argument or be humiliated without becoming physically violent. A 90 IQ, you know, I, I don't know what my IQ is, but it, it, my, my son's indicating it might be low, Joshua, the intern. But... This guy speaks fluently English, Italian, French, Spanish. He runs one of the biggest heroin enterprises the world's ever seen. Yeah. He's becomes the top of a family. He almost defeats the Gambinos. There's no way in hell this guy's an idiot. And when we see other things, he does. But you can say a lot of bad things about him, but stupid he is not. Uh, upon his release in 1939, his official employment record states... He goes back to his old job at the Artificial Flower Company. In reality, Galani becomes one of Vito Genovese's most trusted hitmen, earning himself a vicious and fearsome reputation among his fellow mobsters. It is said that Galani can kill a man with simply one punch, while the veracity of his killings strike fear into even the most hardened killers in the five families. It sounds like Galani is uh, the Italian Iron Mike. He is. He, he didn't seem to get in the uh, other kinds of trouble that Mike Tyson no, did. No, he didn't. Although there's one story where he takes a plate of spaghetti. This girl, he's, he's in a restaurant, and this lady makes an innocent comment. She's a young girl. She's probably nervous, you know. Doesn't know any better. He takes a plate of hot spaghetti, shoves it in her face, and, and presses it in. I guess it's so hot, it tears her face up and scars it up permanently. February of 1941, he joins local 856 of the Longshoremen's Union, sponsored by his elder brother Sam, and for a time, supposedly works as a stevedore for the New York and Cuba Steamship Company. Sometime in September, he claims either to have left that job or to be moonlighting on another because he shows his employment as a laborer at the General Electric Plating Company on Grand Street in Manhattan's Little Italy area. By August 43, he claims to work for a cartage company called Knickerbocker Trading. The job is apparently organized for him by an upcoming hood in the mafia crime family we know today 
as the Lucchese, and it pays him an impressive 27 bucks a week, about 410 in today's economy. According to police records, he lives either with his mother or sisters, which might account for the variety of addresses he often quotes from Brooklyn to New York. It is during this time that the cigar will first make the national headlines. Galani's notoriety comes in the form of Carlo Tresca, an anti-fascist newspaper publisher in New York. Tresca is extremely popular in the city's elite social circles and a proverbial thorn in the side of Benito Mussolini. According to legend, Mussolini turns to Vito Genovese to carry out a hit on Tresca. This is going to be a high-profile hit, and Galani has become so trusted in the underworld that he is assigned the job. His first plan is to run Tresca down in a brown-colored Ford, but the attempt is unsuccessful. Galani, undeterred, decides that next time he will leave nothing to chance. Two days later, around 6 p.m., Galani is in a meeting with his parole officer, Sidney Gross, in an agency office in downtown Manhattan. Gross deems Carmine's behavior to be suspicious, and he alerts two of his agents with words to that effect. One particularly tenacious agent, Fred Burson, follows Galani all the way to his car, but wartime rationing of gasoline within the department forbids him to actually pursue homicidal maniacs. Bureaucracy at its finest. <laughs> See, he finally has a lead on this guy, and he can't go because he can't fill his car Don't up. waste that gas. <laughs> Gotta save that gas. A few hours later, Carmine and at least two accomplices wait in that same brown Ford outside Carlo Tresca's office building near 15th Street, probably looking suspicious as they tend to do. Somewhere nearby, a fourth man stands at his post brandishing a 38 revolver. He's there to back up Galani's move, eliminating the possibility of a Tresca retreat. Exiting the staked-out building at 9.45 p.m., Tresca and a friend cross to the corner of 5th Avenue. Galani, dressed in a brown overcoat, runs down the street, shoots Tresca twice at close range in full view of witnesses, and then leaps into the waiting car that speeds off west in the direction of Chelsea. So he didn't miss, he didn't miss the jump this time. He made it. He made it into the car. <laughs> it's the simple plans that usually work. Yeah. Quite often, eyewitnesses to this sort of thing are unreliable as things happen very quickly, and adrenaline gets pumping, causing a lot of crucial details to be overlooked. Not this time. The two men on the scene, employed by the Norwegian consulate, are walking on 15th Street when they hear the shots. One of the men has served in the automobile corps of the Norwegian army and knows his cars. He describes it down to the last detail. The 38 revolver is found in the doorway of Tresca's office building, apparently dropped and abandoned in the confusion. The gun is traced to Philly, where the trail goes cold. Also dropped and abandoned is Carlo Tresca's body, oozing the last of its anti-fascist life onto the cold city street beneath it. There's something about these guys just all sitting in a car, because, you know, they're kind of short and fat and stuff, and it's yeah. like they stick out. Yeah. You know, everybody sees them. You know, it's just <laughs> something, I don't know, man. He's like, I, I'd say we run them down. You know? <laughs> and like an average car, too, like a brown Ford. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and Four then guys. you know, Galani's like, "Hey, how, how about this? What about I just go out and I, and I say I shoot him? I just shoot him twice." <laughs> like, oh, yeah, they probably could have been talking over the plan, and then they just hear a door close, and they see Galani <laughs> walking. Down oh the shit! Sidewalk. He's coming! He's coming! He's coming! Oh, uh, <laughs> it's, it's too late to drop a safe on his head. Yeah, <laughs> plan B. Burson, the agent who was previously shackled by lack of departmental gas money 
is convinced Galani is responsible for the Tresca shooting and is naively vocal about his assertions. He is summarily fired following a letter sent to the board by a fellow parole officer who a few weeks later kills himself. The snitchy parole officer leaves a suicide note stating he has shot himself because of what he had been forced to do to Bursman. Files in the New York DA's office contain information that Carmine Galani, Frank Citrano, Tony Garappa, and Joe and Pete DiPalermo were paid 9000 130 grand today for carrying out the hit on Tresca. The money coming to them via Joe Parisi, a member of the Teamsters Union, a class act organization. And always. <laughs> the Teamsters are always straight up. Charitable donations only. <laughs> Close associate of Albert Anastasia and Vincenzo Mangano, the administration of what is now known as the Gambino family. And you got to remember, this would be a few years after the dissolution of the famous Murder Incorporated, which was led at one time by Anastasia. Yep. There, there's no evidence that Galani was ever a part of that organization, presumably because he's a dick and none of the cool killers <laughs> wanted to play with him. No matter how hard the police and federal authorities try, they can't pin the murder on Carmine Galani. They follow him around for days, spotting him meeting with friends and associates at his favorite haunts. At some point, they haul him and his criminal associates in for questioning, but ultimately nothing comes of it. At the relatively young age of 32, Carmine Galani has come a long way in the Italian-American underworld. While Genovese may have taught Galani the killing stroke, it is Joe Bonanno who will now tutor Carmine in the ways of leadership. Galani serves as Bonanno's personal driver and bodyguard and eventually works his way up to the title of underboss. Now, underboss is a significant title. He's a... He's a hitman thug at this point, but now if you're the underboss, that means anything happens to Bonanno. If he's killed, if he's hospitalized, uh, then he's the guy in charge. For whatever reason, he's stinking a lot of this guy. In February of 1945, he marries 28-year-old Elena Nympha Maruli, always referred to as Helen. She had been his alibi the night the Tresca was killed, confirming they both had been to the movies near Times Square watching the new release, Casablanca, then spending the rest of the evening at a hotel. I see the, uh, the smirk on your face. You don't think these guys are in love. No, I, I don't think so. I don't think they went to the movies. <laughs> I don't think they saw Casablanca. I see what's going on here. You guys are jealous. <laughs> jealous of their love. I couldn't find a picture of Helen... But if you weren't married at the age of 15 back then, you're pretty much a spinster. Yeah. I, I got to assume that Helen was a bit of a dog, and this was probably a win-win situation. Also, I can't remember the exact connection, but she's somebody's daughter. Yeah. She's tied in. She's not. Uh, she they didn't pick her off the street. Right. Yeah. That, that's a good term they could use for her. She just was an alibi for him. That's all it was. It was any excuse you could give him. I was like, home with the uh, wife. Do you, Helen, promise to say you were at Casablanca? I do. I do. Uh, by now Galani is so valued by the likes of Bonanno and Genovese that Genovese sends him to Montreal to set up and oversee New York's heroin route from Canada it's north of the border where Galante makes most of his fortune as a mob figure raking in millions upon millions through the fruitful drug trade while also amassing more than 50 million in gambling profits here he links up with Luigi Greco a Sicilian who has taken over the narcotic business of Harry Davis after he gets murdered in 1946. Greco works alongside the Catroni brothers, Vic, Joe, and Frank, and has a partner named Frank Petrula. Why is this important? Because Vic Catroni, 
who may have been the first mafia boss of the city, becomes so close to Galani that he stands as godfather to one of his children. By 1954, Galani has developed such a power base in Montreal, the underworld refers to him as a Mama Santissima, a big boss, which we speculated is not, uh, is not the real translation. <laughs> I, I could pick out Mama as mother, yeah. and then the Antissima, like the mother of all asses. <laughs> According to the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, Glani also forms an alliance with John Ormento, a capo in the Lucchese crime family, and they begin moving massive amounts of drugs from Cuba and Montreal into New York, Chicago, and Dallas. By 1959, the Catroni brothers are supplying Galani and Ormento with up to 50 kilos of pure heroin a month. So I had a, I had a theory about this. So, 1959, here. The Rolling Stones come around in 1962. So what are the odds, like, Keith Richards got some of Bob <laughs> heroin? I think the odds are pretty high. Oh, yeah. The amount of weight he's probably moving. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, while in Montreal, Galani also opens the Bonfire Restaurant in partnership with the local gambling czar and longtime underworld figure and operates a business called Alpha Investments with his wife listed as an officer of the company. He also has a hand in organizing the unions for the hotel, restaurant, and nightclub workers. He probably could have uh, built a rocket and won the space race for Canada if not for his low IQ. <laughs> Even with all these other irons in the fire, Galani's main mission in Canada is to make it a major staging post in the importation of heroin from Sicily and Marseille for forward shipment into New York. In a report to J. Edgar Hoover from Special Agent in Charge, New York office, it states that Carmine Galani is the Mafia's number one man in Montreal and that he takes 10% out of all rackets in the city. But all good things must come to an end, and in 1956, Carmine is deported from Montreal as an undesirable alien of all the nerve, this is largely due to his strong-arm tactics. At this point, it's worthwhile to mention that there are two governmental law enforcement agencies going after the mob, the FBI and the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. Now, you would think these two agencies would partner up against the common enemy, but that would fly in the face of a true bureaucracy. <laughs> Naturally, these two departments, headed by J. Edgar Hoover and Harry Anslinger, respectively, hated each other. I don't think J. Edgar Hoover was a very well-liked guy from everything I've read. And yeah, didn't get along with him. That's a Yeah, that's a shocker. <laughs> uh, professionally and personally, they did not like each other. They shared virtually no information. And or while dresses. <laughs> they would not share shoes, dresses. No, no. <laughs> they shared no information. And while the FBI always seemed a step behind organized crime, the FBN was a step ahead. The FBN had infiltrated the mob completely. They okay. knew what was going on, and when Galani got in, they, they're the ones that knew. And of course, they don't tell the FBI. All of a sudden, you know, they've got the yeah. they've got the arrest. Imagine how quickly things could be solved and wrapped up if they would just help. Yeah. But oh, yeah. just just spite. Because <laughs> the FBN's just laughing at them because they're they're like going for the vending company and the yeah. they go oh fish they're they're in the fish they're in the fish you know and they're, they're it's crazy. Could have easily got them. Yeah. Carmine operates a number of legitimate businesses that keep Hoover's men running in surveillance circles. One, Rosina Costume Company. There you go. There you go, Bill. Uh, <laughs> I think I overshot. That. <laughs> 
Sorry, Joshua can put this at the end of what you say now. <laughs> <laughs> It'll all make sense. Yeah. Uh, which is a contract cutter for major dress manufacturers. Galani is listed as its secretary treasurer and his wife Helen as vice president. My ass. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's like in casino and uh, they list Ace as the food and beverage guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Head of food and beverage. <laughs> Uh, another is Latimer Shipping Company, based in New York. This is set up as an import-export company, but the feds are convinced he's using it as part of a worldwide distribution network involving his drug business. Lastly, there is Avco Vending Machine Company, located in New Jersey. I wonder if you could buy heroin in the vending machines. <laughs> How much do you think it was in the vending machine? They're, they're in the zero bars. <laughs> it's also worth mentioning that sometime... Perhaps as early as 1949, Carmine Galani begins leading a double life. Aside from Helen and his three children in Brooklyn, he has another wife and two children in New Jersey. His second family lives with him in suburban Fort Lee. The new woman in his life is Anne Aquavella. Just a hell of a name. Hell it's, it's of a, a pretty name. name. Yeah. And a pretty girl. Yeah. She's small, dark-haired, and extremely attractive in stark contrast to the short, stubby, and balding Galani. Uh, there's a remote possibility she's attracted to his wealth. The union produced two daughters, Mary Lou, born in 1950, and Nina, born in 1954. Galani stays with Aquavella for the rest of his life, although they're never formally married. Being a good Catholic, he never divorces Helen, even though an underworld source claims he would shoot you dead in church during high mass. So why, if you're Galani, would you marry? We get that he married the one for the for the alibi. He married Helen yeah, for the alibi. Yeah. Uh, we could cynically deduce why does he take another family? Yeah, it did say she's hot. <laughs> what yeah. did what did Helen think? Because it said he does it mean he never returned home? That well, he stayed no, the, the rest impression, of his the life. impression I get is that he goes home to Helen, does his thing with her. I'm sure that's a great marriage, you know. <laughs> then he leaves on the and rocks. At, at five in the morning. He's come, honey, I'm home. You know, and she's like, where the hell you been all night? And now he's got to deal with Aunt. Yeah. So it's I, I, it baffles me, you yeah. know, because sometimes I go on a vacation. I love my kids, you know, I do, and my wife. But sometimes you just want to drive the car right off a cliff, you know, because it's so much chaos yeah. and the thought that i would take them home get a couple hours of sleep get up drive across town and have another one yeah it is baffling to me it's like a it's like a full-time job almost. yeah there are now officially thoughts rattling around in galani's head that i cannot find in my own <laughs> yeah hope that, I'm, I'm really hoping mary lou and nina got Anne's genetics yeah. <laughs> and not carmines and Hoping they they lucked out on that draw. They had beautiful faces on short, fat, little stubby <laughs> bodies. It was very sad. Every uh, picture we ever see him in, it's just their face. I, I always, never. always from the shoulders up. Never, <laughs> never full body pics at their family vacations. I think that's where the ninety IQ comes in. The second, the second family. There are, to- yeah, there are some telltale signs where, yeah. uh, where the bump in the head took its toll. <laughs> It's funny, though, if everything we read, this is the thing that's really got us rattled. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of a monster do this to himself? He's uh, a good Catholic. He doesn't divorce. He's a good Catholic. Exactly. Uh, according to his neighbors, Galani's back and forth into his New Jersey home, but most often arrives at about 5 in the morning. Uh, in order to legitimize his two daughters, he arranges for Anne to marry Stephen Schwartz, a man who serves as a director of Abco Vending in New Jersey. 
Obviously, this is purely a marriage of convenience. Schwartz has also been closely involved with Galani in Montreal. While they live in New Jersey, Galani's de facto wife works as a dispatcher for the Calandrillo Trucking Company located in Lodi. In 1955, Galani is also partners in a pastry shop in Lower Manhattan called Di Matteo and Galani. Everything is like a mafia version of Ozzy and Harriet until Carmine hits another run of bad luck. In October 1956, a state trooper patrolling the highway near Binghamton accidentally does his job and pulls a car over that is speeding through the town of Windsor. Eventually, the driver is identified as Carmine Galani. Galani is held in the station jail while further inquiries are being conducted. Within 24 hours, an army of shady lawyers are telephoning politicians in Albany trying to get them to intercede. A couple days later, a group of police officers from West New York arrive in Binghamton and try to bribe Sergeant Edgar Croswell of the state police into letting the case drop. The offer is $1,000 in cash, about $9,500 today. In due course, indictments are laid against the public safety commissioner, the police chief, a detective captain, and a detective sergeant of West New York, a town in New Jersey. Of course, it's alleged that the involvement of these four senior city officials with organized crime goes much deeper than just trying to fudge a traffic ticket. Astoundingly, the lawyer who represented Galani is none other than Donald W. Kramer, the mayor of Binghamton. It's possible that in this case, too many cooks spoiled the sauce, as Carmine does his 30 days in the Broome County Jail, which he serves through November. Living in Bingham's got to be a just a treat, <laughs> you know? Living the high life. It's like living in, what was that thing with the Dukes of Hazard, With Boss Hogg? Yeah, Hazard. Yeah. Living in Hazard <laughs> County, yeah. Like, look, a cop was on the take and the boss was on the take. In October 57, Bonanno and Galani hold a meeting in Palermo, Sicily to organize plans to start a massive heroin distribution to the United States. Mafia legends like Lucky Luciano and Giuseppe Genco Russo are in attendance. It is determined by Bonanno that Galani will lead the operation. This effectively makes Galani one of the wealthiest and most powerful mob figures in the business. This is where you get the uh, French Connection, the movie. Yeah. And uh, this has become such a big deal because you figure, like, Prohibition was the birth of all this stuff. Because uh, Prohibition, though, had a lot of benefits because it was a bogus law. It was bullshit. Everybody knew it. Everybody wanted a drink. Even the cops wanted a drink. They were happy to take bribes. Booze was easy to make. Everybody was making it in their basements and stuff. They were making money, and then they start figuring out how to get it, you know, from... Uh, from overseas and stuff. Now they're getting good whiskey. It was easy and there wasn't a lot of persecution. Mm -hmm. But 1930 comes, it, it's all gone, right? Now the mob was resourceful. They'd made so much money, Luciano and these guys, they had other rackets. This is when they're going into the unions. They're taking over women's clothing units, men's clothing units. They've got a million other things going so they don't need it. But when heroin comes, this is yep. big money. Yep. They're taking it in Turkey Right? They're taking the poppy seeds in Turkey. They're uh, refining it in Lebanon. They're moving it from France to Sicily and then over to Canada. But basically, you could take $100 of poppy seed and turn it into $100,000 on the streets of New York City. Everybody wants in on this. And they're, and they're getting smart and they're getting organized. Yeah. So one of the ways they're doing this, like they're going all these little... He's got these import-export things that I think are just red herrings. He's got this uh, Italian Airways 
they're flying it to Canada. They've got their guy there. They could take two bags and check them unattended. This is something you could do back then. Mm -hmm. They're full of heroin, right? 50 kilos, 40, 50 kilos of heroin. Yeah. They send it right over. There's a guy waiting on the airplane that works at the uh, Air Italia on the Canadian side. He takes it off the plane. It never gets to customs. They're doing this <laughs> all day long, every day, right? And then Canada and America, it's basically an open border. And uh, one of the things in the movie, The French Connection, they were hiding it in corner panels and things like that. And they did it to a degree, but the movie was a little bit kind of misleading because they were weighing the car and they're saying it's heavy you know and that's what was making them strip it more and more and more in the movie in reality they're taking like a 20 gallon gas tank and they're, they're replacing it with a gallon just enough to get over the border into their boy's house and uh, the rest of it's heroin so they're driving it right across and it's just it's this is going on all the time and uh See, they say he kills 80 people if you look at what the heroin trade did to new york city he killed thousands of people uh, you know, and sometimes intentionally. Yeah, it's like you always say, Bredis, can he be bought? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's that simple. Like if you can buy somebody off at the airport, yeah, you're golden. Well, because you yeah. think the guy that yeah that works in the plane, whoever making whatever slot money, you pay him a couple hundred dollars back then to just take a bag off early. Yeah, no questions asked. He seems like I don't don't tell me anything else. Yeah, 150 bucks. I'll take that bag and put it wherever you need. Yeah. <laughs> Well, of course, and a nod to the Godfather, they'll make you an offer you can't refuse. Yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't you be happier with the money and your family alive? Yeah, I would. <laughs> well, when you, when you put it that way, I'll take you back. Yeah, <laughs> nobody wants to do anything like that. So, upon being extradited back to New York for extortion offenses in 1957, Galani finds himself back in prison following two straight drug arrests in 1962. The U.S. Congress had passed a Draconian Narcotics Control Act in 56, signed by Eisenhower, and Galani is one of 206 big-time mafia gangsters caught by authorities under this law. The trial of Galani is a long and interesting process. The first trial is ending prematurely when the jury foreman mysteriously falls down a stairwell and breaks his back. The second trial seems to be even more calamitous than the first. The jury is under constant pressure. Galani's soldiers routinely intimidate them. At one point, a man even storms the jury box, screaming and threatening the jurors if they convict. The defendants stare coldly into the jurists' eyes, and some have to be shackled to their chairs during the procedures. Finally, the presiding judge leaves his home one morning to find a severed dog's head on his front porch, an old Sicilian message warning him not to allow a conviction. The judge is awarded a 24-hour police protection for months. In the end, Lilo is finally convicted. This kind of like uh, echoes from the horse's head in The Godfather, you yeah. know? <clears throat> yeah, the horse head is definitely a clear message. Not the same thing. And like I said, they're like emboldened by the Godfather movie and stuff, and they're like, they're too lazy to do a horse. That's what yeah. this gets down to. And they're too lazy to go inside. Yeah. Like, yeah, hey, we'll just, a dog put it, and we'll put it in front of the door. He'll come out. He'll see it. And what do you inside. do with the rest of the dog? I don't know. Also a Sicilian tradition. That, that I'd give to my sweetheart <laughs> as a son of mine. There you go. Undying love. <laughs> I wonder who came up with that in Sicily. Like, this will show him. Just chop off this horse's head, put it on his porch, yeah, put it in his it bed. Was, and Godfather made sense because he was like stroking the horse. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, if you severed my Yorkie's head, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm still convicted. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just kidding, buddy. <laughs> Uh, Galani is held in the Federal Detention Center in New York 
before being sent first to Alcatraz and then to Lewisburg Penitentiary, Leavenworth, and finally Atlanta to serve out his sentence. It'll be the longest time he's spent behind bars. He's eventually released from prison in January 74. He'll remain on bail until 1981. His time in Lewisburg Penitentiary is not totally unpleasant. He has his own cell in G-Block, known by the inmates as the prestigious Mafia Row, and he develops a lifelong interest and pleasure in growing plants and flowers. How about that? came back around. You know, I'm putting that on the douchebag list. I don't like botanists. <laughs> 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 on my list, that gets you, that gets you back on You're the douchebag. Douche uh, he's also allowed three cats as company, so you know this guy's scum. He, he likes cats. Uh, <laughs> I like cats. <laughs> uh, I don't know, Bill. I don't know. Uh, spends many hours keeping fit. So, okay. Turn himself around. You know, and back to the cats, we've already learned that dogs have a negative connotation in Sicilian society. Yeah, like I said, that's cats. true. If you yeah. have three dogs in Mafia Row, you're asking for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he even becomes a close friend of Jimmy Hoffa. How about that? How about it's that? a small world. Yeah. Yeah. It comes full circle. <laughs> and apparently rules the block with an iron hand. He has no taste for prison food, so he bribes the guards in order to get he and his men the finest cuts of meat. I looked into that. He bribed him with $250 at the time. Wow. Yeah, but it was interesting because you think like Mafia Row, they'd be the badasses and stuff, but the prison guards didn't really worry about them too much because they're not stupid, and they're not out there killing each other and knifing each other and getting more trouble. They are walking the line. They cause no trouble. You know, their their whole goal is to get back on the street and mm-hmm. stuff. So they're actually not a problem in prison, and the guards yeah. seem to not mind them very much. We'll get a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll them any problems. 50 bucks. I'll, I'll get you any steak you need. <laughs> what is that now? 250 in the 70s. I'm not sure what the conversion is, but it's like I did a few of the mass, but I bet it's, it's close to a thousand bucks. I'll get you whatever steak you need. <laughs> yeah, it's, I'm sure it's more than their week's pay. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, during his time in the Pokey, Galani's world outside his cell is rapidly changing. Forced into exile in Arizona after unsuccessfully vying for top spot at the commission, Banano's influence as a Don is greatly diminished without his top enforcer at his side. After being released in 1974, Galani returns to the streets ready for war. Within hours of becoming a free man once again, Carmine orders the desecration of former mob boss Frank Costello via a stick of dynamite. In prison, Galani publicly expresses to everyone how he hates the legendary mobster. He vows to kill him, but Costello dies in bed soon after and is buried on the Mafia Boot Hill in Calvary Cemetery in Queens. He technically can't kill a dead man, so he firebombs the bronze doors of Costello's tomb, blowing them off the hinges. Which, why? Why? It seems like a waste of money and It's time. just a big middle finger to him and to the other guys that he's coming after. <laughs> yeah. Seems like a waste of time. He has no class. It's, it's the principle of the bombing. <laughs> this is what I would have done. Yeah, he also threatens to send some atrocities in the direction of Carlo Gambino who he hates with a passion for his part in the commission's decision to overthrow Joe Bonanno. According to police informers, when he speaks to Gambino, he literally quivers with rage. In addition to these quarrels, he must resolve the problem of the leadership in his own crime family. Uh, There's a lot of problems going on in the Bonanno family, and the FBI are like uh, tongue-in-cheek referring to it as the banana split, because it's it's a mess. Following the dethroning of Bonanno in the late 60s, there had been a series of boss replacements in the family. 
In 73, head honcho Natali Evola dies of cancer and is replaced by Philip Rusty Rustelli. When Galani emerges from federal prison, he makes it quite clear he's going to be the top dog. Rustelli resists the move until one day his son-in-law, James Fernandez, is gunned down in broad daylight on a Brooklyn street. Rustelli figures he'll be better off with his heart beating and moves aside willingly, but as it would turn out, only temporarily. Galani has been planning this for a long time. He knows if he's going to keep his power, he will need money and protection like no boss before him. Galani figures to insulate himself with a group called Zips, nasty Sicilians who were brand new to the big city and ready to make a name for themselves and the drug business for Galani. From Wikipedia, Zips is a slang term in the United States that was especially in use in the early 20th century. It was often used as a derogatory slur by Italian-American and Sicilian-American mobsters in reference to newer immigrant Sicilian and Italian mafiosi. The mobsters in the U.S. were said to have difficulty understanding the Sicilian dialects of the new immigrants, and which words appeared to zip by. Other theories include pejorative uses, such as Sicilians' preference for silent, homemade zip guns. According to still another theory, the term is a contraction of the Sicilian slang term for hicks or primitives. Oh, the zips are fun. Uh, the zips became known for their reckless and undisciplined behavior, which gained unwanted attention for New York's crime families. The Zips had no qualms about murdering people who had been considered off-limits by the American mob, such as police officers, judges, and women and children. They were also well-known for using bombs to kill their targets. Although bombings were commonly used by the Sicilian mob, American mafiosi had usually shied away from bombs out of concern that they could put innocent people at risk. Zips were also known to have killed victims who were terminally ill. In the Sicilian Mafia, when someone is marked for death, that person can't be allowed to die of natural causes. Joseph Pistone, an FBI agent whose undercover alias was Donnie Brasco, said that Galani surrounding himself with young Sicilians was due to his lack of trust. Quote, Lots of people hate Galani. There's only a few people he's close to, and that's mainly the Zips. Those guys are always with him. He brought them over from Sicily, and he uses them for different pieces of work and for dealing all that junk. They're as mean as he is. You can't trust those bastard zips. Nobody can, except the old man. It's reported that they hated the American people. They hated the American wise guys. The zips are clannish and secretive. They're the meanest killers in the business. Zips do make the mob's life much easier in a legal sense, as the Sicilians are unknown in America and don't carry any prior history with law enforcement along with them. The Zips, whom Galante recruits from his hometown of Trapani, serve as his contract killers and main enforcers in the heroin trade. With their help, Galani's heroin enterprise is reportedly making upwards of $10 million a year at its peak. He, in turn, is making enemies by keeping more and more of these profits to himself, cutting out many of his associates entirely. Just why? Why, why do you have to cut them out? You're making millions. You know, but the Zips were a good move for him because I don't think he would have gotten anywhere without him. And you got to remember now, this isn't Galani in 1940. He's getting old. He's losing a step, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's like being in a, a lion's den. There's always a young lion looking. The Zips bought him time, and uh, they were loyal to him. They're from his hometown. They don't even speak English, most of them. And uh, they just don't give a damn. Like, we're, you know, like he said, like you don't want to kill kids and things like that. We already know Galani's got no problem with that. And these Zips are like, they considered them reckless and undisciplined, but in another sense, they're very disciplined because they're going to do it no matter what. Where, you know, the 
we're going to walk around and go, hey, he's with his kid right now, or he's with a cop, or he's, he's, he's in an orphanage right now. I'm gonna, yeah. They don't wait, right? They'll take a stick of dynamite, stick it in a kid's hand, or put it in his hot dog. Hey, kid, why don't you go give this to your old man, you know? <laughs> hey, Dad, here's I got a hot dog for you. And you blow up the whole freaking store. He doesn't care, you know? It makes it, the American mafia look like Like a saints, bunch of nice guys. Pu- public servants. Yeah. Super. <laughs> He does. So these guys are just terrifying. Yeah. And uh, Galani keeps them close. It's, yeah, it's smart, too. You could bring him over from his hometown. They're not, he's no, he knows they're not going to be informants. Oh, yeah. There's always that underlying, who can I trust? And he was starting to get paranoid more and more every year. Absolutely. Omerta, and they're over right? there eating dirt in Sicily, poor and stuff. They come yeah. over here, and they got the fancy cars, the hot girls, the women. I mean, he, they owe them the, their lives. They owe them yeah. everything. So they act without question. Yeah. Galani orders the firebombing of a large string of pizza parlors used by the Gambinos to distribute their heroin. He replaces their businesses with pizza shops of his own. The heroin profits are obscene, and there is no need to cut the product, adding additional powder to dilute the drug's potency. But he cuts it anyway, taking the purity from 100% to about 70%. He virtually eliminates any other organization from sharing the profits. At this point, i got to say some things that are going to be hard to hear. One of the easier ones is that even the pizza ingredients at these pizza stores are mafia-owned. Like, even the sausage you buy, the the mozzarella, all this stuff, it's all like you're buying it from from the mob. And uh, the worst of it with the heroin, since he's cutting it, you know, the heroin's known to be pure. He's he's cutting it down 30%. He doesn't want to overstep it. So, according to the... The things I've read, he had what he called the black man test. He would take the cut heroin, grab a black junkie from the so street, bad. he would shoot two bags of heroin into the guy, and if he died, then the heroin was still good enough. So, and I, I don't know why it shocked me, you know, but I'm reading that, and mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, oh, hell, he's a racist. Well, yeah. of course he is, you yeah. know, so, you know, and uh, I, I don't know how I keep getting shocked by this guy, yeah. but th- this one was like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah, and he's fun. a paying customer, for God's sake. Yeah. You know, just a complete, just a complete ass. Galani is becoming so powerful that he begins boasting himself as king of New York and the boss of bosses. And it's at this time that the commission decides action has to be taken against the time bomb that is Galante. With help from Gambino and Genovese, Rustelli plots Galani's demise from the can. Galani's death will not be another run-of-the-mill mob hit. No, his death will send a message to rebellious gangsters all across the city. Okay, next is the big scene of the assassination. It's it's no uh, spoiler. He he's gonna die in this. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> so before we uh, get to that, I guess you were holding say, out yeah. for, our, for our hero here. <laughs> he's he, not gonna get out he alive. Through Captain America here, <laughs> but to uh, to come up with the assassination, you know, there's a lot of forensic evidence and stuff. But uh, and there's like I said, every time I go down these things, there's rabbit holes, and you're trying to discern what the truth is and stuff. The best stories I got, you know, whether or not they're the absolute most accurate i don't know but the five families by uh selwyn rob had a pretty good depiction of it and i have a feeling that he was a new york times i think it was new york times journalist and stuff so his depiction of it is probably very consistent with the uh 
autopsy and stuff. And then I've got Tom L. Jones, who's a New Zealand retired businessman that contributes to uh, Gangsters Inc. If you've never been to this website, hell of a website, a lot of hell of a websites. But this guy is a great storyteller. You know, his grammar may not always be the best, and, <laughs> yeah. and he kind of goes around corners and he gives so much detail that it kind of lends credibility. Like he'll tell you the time, the day, and he'll tell you all you know, the five people that were sitting at the table next to him and stuff. So. It rings as true, so I took kind of a, a hodgepodge of theirs and then uh, tried to make it kind of flow. So that's that's where we get the story from. It's July twelfth, nineteen seventy nine. Galani is now an elderly man who no longer drives himself around, so he's dropped off at the now famous Joe and Mary's restaurant located on Knickerbocker Avenue. Knickerbocker has been Banano family turf for 50 years and is virtually crawling with miscreant mobsters. Despite the neighborhood slowly becoming a melting pot, there is still a predominantly Sicilian dialect spoken and they feel that an undercover cop will stick out like a turd in a punch bowl. The owner of Joe and Mary's restaurant is Joe Tirano and according to sources, does a thriving business in hijacked meat. Hijacked meat just tastes better. The restaurant is most often described being the typical Italian stereotype with brown velvet walls and yellow tablecloths. It boasts a 200 square foot patio in the backyard just behind a simple door in the rear of the place. A few patrons are eating inside, but Mr. Galani and company will be enjoying their meal on the patio. The menu consists of salad, fish, and a jug of wine, probably Chianti. Galani is in a good mood, playing the kindly old Italian guy and stopping to chat to the people within the eatery. Man of the people. He's like a homicidal Mr. Magoo at this point. <laughs> yeah. That's what they're saying. When you see him now, he's like, ah, he's an old man walking around, like shining the apple on his yeah. shirt. And, you know, he's he's as close to charming as he's ever going to get. Yeah. yeah. Pleasantry's out of the way. He moves to the back patio where his table has been waiting. At the table is his 72-year-old cousin, Angelo Little Mo Presenzano. Also in the company will be Leonard Nardo Coppola. Apparently one of Galani's intentions today is to settle some little beef between Joe Tirano and Coppola, which resulted in the latter being banned from Joe and Mary's. Which is, you know, it seems like a little deal, but if you're on Bonanno Street there, you know, Knickerbocker, yeah. Joe and Mary's is where the things happen. So yeah. the beef was something to do with his wife. I, I don't have the details and don't want to speculate. I, I don't know what the deal was, yeah. but it had to do with uh, Toronto's wife and he's been kicked out, you know, and mm. so he's trying to get him back in. It's getting to be about 1.30 when Coppola shows up with two of Galani's favorite bodyguards, Baldo Amato and Cesare Bonventre. They are zips that Carmine selected personally and even presided over the ceremony that donned them made guys. Their cousins, described as ruthless murderers with movie star looks. They're wearing unseasonably warm leather jackets, presumably to hide the handguns in their waistbands. They move straight to the back, greet their boss and his companions, and eventually make their way back into the restaurant to have lunch. Galani has by now finished his meal and is relaxed, talking and enjoying one of his trademark cigars. It's around 2 o'clock now, and the sun is beating down like a jackhammer. Coppola and the Zips rejoin their boss, having finished their meals. Amato and Cesare flank Galani to his left and right, respectively. Their boss most likely never feels safer in his life. Joe Tirano is still at the table with his back to the door, leading out onto the patio. Coppola is across from Bonventre, between a wire fence that divides off the next door property and a cluster of potted plants sitting against the outside wall of the restaurant. At around 2.30, Galani's nephew calls the restaurant to check in. 
He leaves word for his uncle that he'll be there shortly. He better pray for slow traffic. What happens next is open to a bit of interpretation. What we know for sure is that Galani's cousin Angelo ends up leaving early. Now, by some accounts, it's because he starts complaining about stomach pains, and Galani suggests he go home. If this is true, as New Zealand author Tom Jones points out, these would be the most fortuitous cramps ever had by anyone. There are other accounts that suggest he had to leave to attend a business matter, or perhaps it's somewhere in between. He left to go do his stomach business in the comfort of his own bathroom. The third option is that little Mo is only there to ensure that his cousin Carmine is, and then he gets the hell out of there before the party starts. It is now approximately 2.40 in the afternoon as a four-door blue Mercury Montego pulls up outside Joe and Mary's and, of course, double parks in the street. The car has been stolen from Queens about a month prior. The first man out of the car is the driver. He's wearing a red striped ski mask. He is hefting a 30 caliber M1 carbine, which is a standard U.S. military rifle at this time. Three men, also wearing ski masks, exit the illegally parked car and trot into the restaurant ironically right past a hanging picture of the Last Supper. The first goon is sporting a pump-action shotgun. He is tall and slim in dark clothes, his face covered by an olive gray ski mask. Behind him comes a medium-sized man, swinging a double-barreled shotgun, also masked. The third masked man is shorter and stocky, and his belly suggests a weakness for cannolis. He only brought a pistol. The first man stops and says, In the back, Sally. As the men rush onto the patio, Toronto's son screams out in warning and then bolts for a back room close to the kitchen. He knows there's a loaded 38 revolver there, just inside the door. As he struggles to reach it and keep the door closed, the cannoli-loving gunman turns, busts the door open, and shoots him twice in the back. Out on the patio, Joe Toronto shouts, What are you doing? It's a good question. The middle gunman steps out, levels the double barrel shotgun, and fires 30 pellets of buckshot, hitting Galani as he is rising from his chair. Toronto again asks, What are you doing? Suggesting that he, rather than Galani, is the one with the 90 IQ. The first shooter jacks his pump action, presses it to Toronto's chest, and blows him off his feet. The buckshot goes through his chest, passing through his lungs, and severing major blood vessels in his neck and heart. The side of his face and part of his right shoulder have been torn from his body. The gunman then swings away from Toronto, jacking and firing three times into Galani, tearing lumps of muscle from his right arm, ripping into the side of his face, and blowing out his left eye. As the old man pitches from his patio chair, the killer with the double barrel fires a final blast into his back. Nardo Coppola is not as puzzled as Toronto and decides he has somewhere else to be as one of Galani's ill-trusted bodyguards pulls out a 30 caliber automatic and shoots him once in the face and then five times in the chest, sending him off his feet. Gravity picks up where the automatic left off and he falls hard onto the concrete patio. As he sprawls face down, the killer with the pump action steps forward around the table, racks up a shell, and blasts off the top of his head, spraying his brains across the patio and giving the restaurant wall behind him a free paint job. He then fires a final round into his back. Constanza Tirano, the 18-year-old daughter of the family, crouches in terror behind a refrigerator in the kitchen area. She stares in horror through the doorway at the carnage taking place outside on the patio. The noise is deafening. There's gun smoke everywhere. Your chances of inheriting her father's restaurant have improved considerably. She sees the other leather-jacketed man, the one with dark hair, kneeling behind an overturned table, a 38 revolver in his hand. Across the street on Knickerbocker Avenue, a young woman is preparing lunch. 
She looks out over the street upon hearing the sound of gunfire and sees the three gunmen race out of the building and jump into the car, which speeds off. Incredibly, she memorizes the plate number. She then sees two tall young men in leather jackets leaving. One with dirty blonde hair, holding a handgun by his side, walks stiff-legged, as though he has wet himself. They quickly moved away down the avenue, towards a blue Lincoln saloon, which they then climb into and drive away. These two have been in an absolute blizzard of bullets, yet walk away dry. Except for the guy's pissed on leg, which I fully believe happened. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. And uh, these are the two baddest zips, whatever, but you got to see when you're there, it's got to be intense, you know? And I think, like, even if these two guys, they're in on it, right? They're clearly in on it. But these are a bunch of scumbags. So I'm thinking, like, yeah, I'm in on it, but but am I in on it, you mm-hmm. know? Am I just in on it to the very end? And they're like, yeah, when you're done with it, shoot them zips, too, because yeah. uh, Galani's been their protection, you know? So... Like, what do you think about them betraying him? Do they have a choice? Yeah, that's tough. I, I don't know. I don't think. I don't think they had a choice. I don't yeah. either. I think, think it's explained. When you the know, other that, families get involved and they start knocking on your door yeah. and leaving a dog's head or a horse's head. <laughs> yeah. And, I think. Yeah, you, you may save him today. Yeah. But they're like, you know what? It's going to be the next time. It's going to be walking in, and you're all going to get blown away and stuff. So I think it's. They had to be reasonable. You get it. They probably did it begrudgingly, but if if they have feelings, I yeah. don't know. I don't know. Probably some weak moral fiber, like an offer they can't refuse. Money talks. Probably a hefty, yeah, a hefty little <laughs> fee there to go ahead and take them out. Right, but I think at least one of them was so nervous about the outcome of this that he absolutely oh, pissed yeah. himself. Yeah. Oh, hundred yeah. percent. Oh, if not, shit himself. You, you got to give him a pass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this pretty stressful time he went through. Over the next few minutes, police emergency service operators received 23 calls reporting that there has been a shooting at 205 Knickerbocker Avenue. A crowd is gathering outside the restaurant at exactly 3.20 as the first 83rd Precinct patrol car arrives. Officer John Bobbitt, gun drawn, is the first into the building. Soon ambulances arrive with Joe and John Toronto are rushed away. The son will survive. His father, not so lucky. He dies on the way to the hospital. I picture him getting loaded into the ambulance, like looking at the orderly going, what What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> One last time. What's going on? I still don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> By 4 o'clock, detectives from the Queens Homicide Task Force are clustered around the two bodies outside in the backyard. The patio is splashed with blood and littered with double O shotgun and pistol shell casings. 19 in all will be recorded. The concrete wall to the left of the door is splattered with brain matter. Wedged between the garden wall and the dining table, his head cocked over, his right hand resting on his hip and a cigar shot to pieces, but still clenched between his dead lips, lays the body of Carmine Galani, flies crawling across his face as his blood oozes away down the six-inch drain in the concrete floor. On his left wrist, his Cartier watch is still ticking. On the table, a half-finished lettuce and tomato salad, some rolls, a peach, and a half-empty carafe of red wine are standing on the floral pattern plastic tablecloth. One like it from an adjoining table will later be used to cover Galani's corpse. Cops from the intelligence unit and agents of the FBI start arriving, and soon the restaurant is crowded with hard-faced men taking notes and talking quietly to each other. 
20 New York City police detectives will be assigned to the inquiry. I saw a few uh, news clippings and stuff on this and people talking about it. And the first cop on the scene didn't know what he had come on. He wasn't even sure that there were uh, really shots fired. And uh, even though this is a Bonanno district and stuff and you think it's a crime-ridden area, it's a probably a peaceful area because everybody's Bonanno here. The reason Galani's here is because he feels safe. You know, so it's probably not a lot of action in the crime wave and stuff. Yeah. But he said he went in and, and that daughter's there and she's hysterical saying that people are shot, her dad's shot and all this stuff. And uh, he's trying to figure out, he goes out and sees the bodies. He still doesn't know what he's walked onto. You know, he, obviously this is bad. And he's talking to her and she's saying, Uncle Carmine. And he's like, well, who's Carmine? And she's like, Carmen Galani. Yeah. And that's when it, he's like, are you freaking telling me Carmen Galani's back there dead? And she said, he must be, he, he hasn't come out. And that's when he realizes he's walked into a shitstorm. Yeah, something like probably that. call for backup. Right? Yeah, <laughs> everything. Yeah, everything changes, and now it's 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 huge. The press arrives, and photographers are soon scrambling onto adjoining rooftops, anxious to get the best shots of the Carnage Carnival. Photos that will fill the New York dailies the following morning. The detectives step gingerly around the debris littering the courtyard. One of the cops measures a piece of Coppola's brain from the body by tape measure, recording the distance as over 11 feet. That seems like a long way. That's a foot taller than NBA basketball goal. Yeah, and uh, I preface this by saying I know it's not a competition. <laughs> how far do you think like Kennedy's brain went out of his head oh. when he was shot by Oswald? Man. Yards. Yeah. I'm saying farther than 11 feet. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of open area. Yeah. This might hit the wall or the fence. Uh, Galani's body is eventually carried out to a waiting hearse four hours after he's gunned down under the sign across the front of the restaurant that reads, we give special attention to outgoing orders. You have to uh, Google this. And uh, like I've got a page on your guys' thing. You can see the, the picture. But yeah. just the... Uh, the, the scene of these, all these guys are like standing around the body and they're helping carry it and there's police and doctors and then this sign that says, we give special attention to outgoing orders. It's like stranger than fiction. Yeah. It's really just Can't bizarre. make it up. The day after the hit, detectives from police intelligence call on Little Mo at his home on South 10th Street in Brooklyn, not far from the East River. We're here to talk to you about Mr. Galani's killing, one of the cops says. Come back when I'm dead, says Mo, <laughs> slamming the door in their face. And, and they don't have to wait long because I think within a few weeks or months, he is dead of a heart attack. <laughs> a heart attack? Yeah, he dies. Oh, okay. I lucked out of a peaceful, <laughs> natural death. So what do you think? Is Mo in on it? I, I'm going to say yeah. Am I, uh, I'm going to say little Mo's in on it. Yeah. Huh. We talked about those the options of it could have been an upset stomach, but that's just that's timing down to a T. Yeah. Like minutes maybe before that car pulls up, uh, some occurrence got to go make a business call. Something that's it's shady. Yeah, and I don't trust anybody. Even the nephew that calls and says, "Is he there? Okay, I'll come pick him up." It might be he's there. Yeah, yeah someone I, I li someone li li trying to listen in, yeah. and they hear always oh, there. Then they can you know. Everybody's a dirtbag. You can't trust oh, anyone. Yeah, yeah. seems like maybe everybody but the daughter was in on it. <laughs> Yeah, she was just trying to have she some lunch. She stands to inherit Joe and Mary's. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> that was Forgot. a long time coming, but she's been wanting Joe and Mary's for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there had been rumors of an impending hit on Galani for over two years. He had many enemies. You, I'm 
shocked. Shocked. <laughs> when someone asked him about the risk of assassination, he boasted, No one will ever kill me. They wouldn't dare. He couldn't have been more wrong. The instrument of his ambition, the Zips, the men he had encouraged and nurtured within the Bonanno family, became the implement of his own destruction. The best bodyguards also make the best killers. Galani, with his patented cigar still in his mouth, had met an end that summed up his criminal career perfectly. A life of brutality, ruthlessness, and violence had finally caught up with him. That is the legend of Carmine the Cigar Galani. Uh, well done. You know, a couple of thoughts on this. Uh, if we go back, they say the last shot was in his back. That's from uh, Tom Jones's depiction. If that's true, why is he laying, you know, if you look at the pictures, yeah. he's belly up. Even Delani with his one eye can see that he is not on his uh, stomach <laughs> yeah. from a back shot. You know, and that cigar in his mouth, that was his nickname. Yeah. And the lighter in his hand. And these guys hate him. He's too good. He's finally dead. He's on yeah. the ground. I think they're like, hey, you fat bastard. Put this in. Now you have the cigar. Huh? Yeah. Have a light. Here's a light for you. Yeah. I, I think that's the way it went down, you know. And uh, it kind of reminds me of the Joe Mysteria killing when he's dying with the ace of spades in his mm. hand. Uh-huh. And, uh, back then, reporters would actually, like, uh, do little things to make the story a little better. I and <laughs> Like yeah. I said, there's no evidence that a reporter got that close, but I could easily see the hitman yeah. just being a callous mother and doing that. I never see a lot to that effect. I saw one detective joking, going, yeah, the guys at the precinct were giving me a hard time saying I did it. But no, he was like that. Yeah. You know? but, <laughs> but he got there a long time after that hit was done. Yeah. And just as soon as I saw it, I'm like, come on. It took the eye out of his head, yeah. but it didn't take the cigar out of his mouth. It was perfect. C- Perfectly laying there. And they said, the, <laughs> the cigar's been shot up, you know? Yeah. And I'm like, I, I can't believe this isn't a bigger story. Yeah, know? it's it's too m- movie-ending-ish yeah, to actually be that way. It's too good to be true. So what happens to the Zips? Uh, Amato, it seems like, just kind of goes on business as usual. He ends up killing someone else and going to jail for it. And uh, really an uneventful life. Definitely. Now, I believe uh, Bonavatra ends up taking over the pizza the, the pizza chain, the network of pizzas. He ends up going down for the heroin thing, which becomes, the pizza network becomes a far bigger scandal on its own and a whole nother story. So he gained the most by that, mm-hmm. you know? But to me, if you're in the mob business, the worst money you spend is a bodyguard. Yeah. When does it ever freaking work? Never. never. Yeah. You know, and... Uh, like, surely these two guys, they can never put bodyguard on their resume mm-hmm. again. No. <laughs> you know, they're no. like, oh, it no. says you were a bodyguard for Carmen Galani. Tell me about that. <laughs> yeah. uh, it wasn't my fault. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's that, yeah, that's always so funny is you're, you're buying a hired gun. That means you should know that he can be bought. Yeah. <laughs> you bought a guy. Someone else can buy him. He... It doesn't mean that he's 100% loyal to me. You're not special. You come from, okay, you come from the same town back home. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Once same the, shady ass, no loyalty town. Yeah. 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 Once the situation gets too hot, they're going to look out for themselves every time. They don't, they don't care. So how do you protect yourself? You got to have like three bodyguards that hate each other, yeah. right? Like they hate each other and they're always looking at the other one. And then the third one's looking at both of them, you know? <laughs> And so that, like, one of them's going to protect you, right? It's just that, that paranoia, probably, the higher you get. And like Zach, you were saying, never wanting to be the boss of bosses. Because no. that paranoia would have to be, you'd have to suspect everybody is All trying to take you out at every chance. 
and that's it. This this arrogant son of a bitch didn't. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Like he said, he he should believe that everybody wants to kill him. Yeah. He's like, yeah, what are you kidding? Nobody's yeah. going to take If you're me in out. crime, you cannot say, nobody's going to kill me. <laughs> <You're>, <laughs> they wouldn't dare. They wouldn't dare. <laughs> and you're a decrepit old man now. He's not punching anybody yeah. in the face. Yeah. Those days are gone. I think he was uh, 69 or 70 when he died. All his money is tied up in these zips, and it just it never works out. But like no. the more I research these things, it's always the bodyguard fell short. Yeah. Okay, I think that's it. Thanks for listening. This has been Partners in Crime, uh, Legends of the Gangsters, where uh, wise guys always finish first. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Partners in Crime. This week's episode, Carmine the Cigar Galante, is an adaptation of several different historical accounts. Music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. All sources and attribute links can be found in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Partners in Crime Podcast. Links are in the show notes. If you didn't like the show, keep your mouth shut. No one likes a rat.